The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums play an important role in our lives. Nearly every good-sized city has at least one museum. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums are not only important places to display artifacts and teach us, they also contribute to the economic development of the areas where they're located. Now, here is your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. This is Carol Bossert, and you're listening to The Museum Life. In this uh, series of shows that I've been doing for about the last uh, 10 weeks, we've been looking at the uh, value of museums in their communities, how museums can reach out to existing audiences and new audiences, and how museums can uh, continue to be relevant to current uh, discussions uh, uh, in society today. And uh, so to follow up on, on this, uh, this theme, I have a wonderful guest. I'm thrilled to have her on, on our show today. Uh, Catherine Hughes ha- uh, is a, has a, her doctorate, and she's also what she describes as a hybrid theater practitioner. Uh, and we'll have her tell us a little bit more about what that means. She's a museum professional, educator, and she's a researcher. Currently, Catherine is Director of Interpretation and Evaluation at Connor Prairie History Museum in Indiana, and she oversees the daily operations of six interpretive areas across more than 200 acres. Uh, Catherine was the project director for Meet the Past, a three-year initiative for that transformed the museum experience in the Atlanta History Center. And she's also worked at the Museum of Science in Boston, the London Science Center, and founded the International Museum Theater Alliance. Uh, she is consultant for, consulted to many international organizations about uh, the importance of museum theater, and uh, including the chemical uh the center for chemical evolution at emory university and she is an author she published the book museum theater communicating with visitors through drama which is uh available through amazon Catherine, welcome to the show today thank you very much carol thank you for having me well Catherine, uh i think People may not see the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the obvious connection between theater and museums. So, uh, my first question to you is, uh, why, why museum theater? Well, some would say that museums are theaters in their own way. Um, I remember Lou Casagrande, who was the head of the Boston Children's Museum, uh, at, in the 1990s, uh, would talk about the the museum as a stage for ideas, and I think 
people go into museums and they do their own kind of performance of uh, promenading through looking, listening, interacting. Um, and so they are, they're, they're performing their part as well. So um, there's lots of different, uh, lo- lots of different ways that you can think of the museum as a theater. Um, and I think for, for me, it's a really, really natural fit to uh, theater applied to education. Um, theater as something that grabs people's attention, engages their emotions, and really can affect cognition. So those uh, I, I looked at in my PhD work at how affect and cognition work together to help people make meaning out of a theatrical experience in a museum. So what you're saying is that museum theater uh, can uh, not only communicate information, the cognitive side reaching our brains, but it also uh, provides a context and a human connection that reaches our hearts. Absolutely. And I think that's something that museums have struggled with for a long time. I mean, there was no expectation uh, for decades that anyone would have their emotions engaged in a museum. Um, but as we've come to understand emotion, we realize that that has to be engaged in order to have any, af- any effect. Um, we have to engage the emotions and uh, sort of the, the heart and the head have to be engaged together. Well, certainly, I, uh, I mean, when I, when I go to the theater, whether it's to the Kennedy Center or, or to our, our local high school production, I'm always, uh, excited to be enveloped by, uh, uh, sort of a, a, a special environment where somebody tells me a really, really good story. Is that sort of the, the fundamental nature of what, what, uh, museum theater is? Well, it's part of it. The narrative form is really important. Um, we make sense of things um, through narrative. It's an organizing framework. So we can get at some very complex ideas in museums by using narrative. Um, so that's definitely a, a foundation for the idea of using museum theater is to get the story told um, because people – can organize their thoughts through that narrative form. But also, as they listen, they are encoding what they're perceiving through the story form. And then when they retrieve that memory, it is again in story form. The The memories that we have at our fingertips are most often in story form. Interesting, interesting. Well, before we uh, we go on to to questions that I have about what what topics uh, might um, might be uh, well served with museum theater, could you give uh, give our listeners a little bit more background about how museum theater started and when it started? Well, I don't know that there was just one moment. I think that you can look at the history of living history. You can look at um, 
outdoor museums for some of the, the, the sort of germ of the idea of animating spaces with live people. So we have, uh, I, I looked back to uh, Scandinavian open air museums. Skansen is one of them that really has been credited as being the first place that had people in different areas doing things that would engage people. It was animating in that uh, time, uh, which was the uh, around 1900, they were talking about animating spaces. Um, and then we had more current movements in living history here at Connor Prairie. Um, and Connor Prairie is actually the first living history museum. Uh, and that surprises some people. We think of Plymouth Plantation. We think of Colonial Williamsburg. Um, but at the time in 1973, 74, uh, those uh, folks in those other institutions were using third person. They weren't going into character. Um, they might have been dressed in costume, but they were talking in present day and not taking on characters necessarily. So it was a little different. Here, we have always gone into character and into time. Um, so that's theater in and of itself. We call it living history, but it's a, a form of theater. Um, in the Science Museum of Minnesota, they started to develop short plays in their exhibitions. The same was um, done at the Museum of Science in Boston. I auditioned in the late 80s um, for a short piece that was being done in front of the Museum of Science's brand new Omnimax Theater. And so I was just a young uh, freelance actor. Somebody said I could get paid to do this job, so that was very attractive. And <laughs> um, so I auditioned and I had a two-month contract. I was very excited about it. And we performed in front of crowds who lined up for the Omni movie, um, usually a half an hour ahead of time. So they needed something to keep them occupied while they waited. And we did a, a, a sort of vaudevillian skit about the technology they were about to experience and uh, some of the content of the movie that they were about to experience. And we did that inside this huge projection booth. Um, so uh, that was where I started. And I had that two-month contract and things were going very well. They were very happy with it. They extended us. We started to work in different areas. And in the end, I worked at the Museum of Science for 15 years. So um, it was it was a surprising turn, uh, certainly in my career. Um, and I really uh, grew to be very passionate about what we were doing when I played Ada Lovelace, who is now credited as being the first computer programmer. And Ada was uh, the daughter of Lord Byron, and she was the protege of Charles Babbage. And Babbage never actually wrote about these machines that he was creating, uh, mechanical machines that 
served now as the predecessor to the first computer. And the analytical engine um, that Babbage was creating uh, was something that Ada was able to envision and see how it might work. And she wrote about it um, in that day, in the early 1800s, she was writing under her initials because a woman was not thought to be capable of thinking mathematically. And in fact, throughout her life, she was counseled to stop thinking so hard because it was hurting her health. Um, so she was, um, she was a great character and I really loved playing her for audiences of visitors who had no idea about her life, um, had no idea about women in science in that day. And also, um, for a lot of, uh, generally men, um, who were working with computers, um, they were so surprised to realize that the supercomputer language that the U.S. Department of Defense created is called ADA, A-D-A, and they thought it was an acronym. They didn't realize it was her name. Uh, so it was always really satisfying to have somebody come up after a show and say, oh, my goodness, I now know <laughs> what I've been working with. Um, so that was, that was always very exciting. And, and then I went on to play her at the London Science Museum, uh, which was, was fun in a different way because I was working in a gallery with Charles Babbage's machines, the pieces that they still have. You know, what I think is so fascinating about this is, uh, well, on, on many le levels, and, and I certainly have just learned, uh, I didn't know about Ada either. Uh, <laughs> so I've learned something today. But, but what this is, what this, uh, uh, what your story just uh, showed me is that museum theater in the way that you were uh, presenting it was also a way of bringing the human uh, story back into the science center. Uh, I know uh, uh, several weeks ago I, I we were I was talking with um, uh, people on the show and we were were almost lamenting the fact that you know science centers get sort of a bad rap sometimes in terms of of the affective side of uh, of engaging visitors because it's all about facts or it's all about phenomena and we sometimes forget that human story and so this is a wonderful example of how uh, a museum, uh, a theatrical presentation can, and a story can be used to uh, tell, I'm sure you provided some scientific information and some technological information, but more importantly, you told a great story that I will now remember forever. Great. Great. Yeah, that's what we did in the Museum of Science. We, we were able to uh, look at how science affected people. Um, we did a whole series of plays that were um, focusing on the social and ethical implications of science. So those pieces, those uh, short plays, were looking at often very complex, often controversial issues in science and um, trying to present situations that people could relate to and understand how cloning or the human genome project or fetal tissue research might affect them. 
Um, and those were our mainstay in the Museum of Science for a number of years, uh, those plays. They were really, really important for visitors. They, they were surprised that we would even attempt to present anything less than an optimistic viewpoint of science, uh, to think about some of the negative implications and contemplate how we might be able to harness this technology or how we haven't um, in the past. Uh, so um, I had, I had a, a gentleman uh, accuse me one time after a play uh, about the Titanic. Um, it was a, a play looking at all of the technology that failed basically uh, together uh, at that moment in time to sink the Titanic and how uh, it also is basically the same story in the Challenger in many, many different moments in history and um, of, of huge technological disaster. And um, this man was incredibly passionate. And at that time, I was doing that play inside a theater, and he sort of grabbed my arm afterwards and dragged me out into the main hallway. And, and he said, look, look what we have done. We should celebrate it. And this man was Italian. And I said, yes, sir, we, we should out here, and we do. But in the theater, we question it. And that's what we're trying to explore here. And he wagged a finger in my face and said, ah, but you are asking questions you should not ask. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> well, with, uh, Catherine, I'm going to stop you right there. That was a great story. We're going to take a uh, quick break. And uh, when we return, we will continue to hear great stories and evidence of the importance of museum theater with Catherine Hughes. Remember, you can always call into the show and reach me anytime at Carol Bob services.com. We'll be back in just a minute. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. one 472 5787 That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. 
Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to radioshow at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Hi, we're back. This is Carol Bossert, and today's guest is Catherine Hughes, an expert in museum theater. And uh, right before the break, she was sharing a wonderful story uh, about doing social conscious uh, programs uh, and and raising ethical questions in a science museum. And Catherine, that that uh, that story that that you were telling about the gentleman who's who you know was very passionate about his objects in the museum, really I think hit home about how museum theater can uh, allow an institution, a museum, to raise some questions that perhaps are uncomfortable to people, uh, uh, raise issues. Issues that 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 have you know are buzzword are lightning rods uh, for certain groups or certain individuals and in a in a safe place and so with that in mind I'd love for you to share with our listeners the wonderful projects that are are taking place at Connor Prairie. Well, thanks. Um, I I I really think that um, Connor Prairie has been doing so many interesting and um, brave things for many years before I got here because I've only been at Connor Prairie for seven months now. Um, and I'm, But I'm very excited to be a part of the organization um, that has done theatrical programming that um, really reaches out and tries to connect with people about things that are relevant today, um, like race. Um, and what right, what we're doing right now, uh, is follow the North star, which is an immersive theatrical experience that people do in November. And then in April, we have to do it when our outside, uh, grounds are closed because we use the grounds for, the program. Um, so we, we do it only two times a year. Um, but we have done it. Um, we do it for three weeks and we do it for school programs during the day and for the public, um, on Thursday, Friday and Saturday nights. And it is incredible to listen to kids talk about how the experience 
affected them. I listened in yesterday to a couple of the debriefings that we have after kids do the program. And it's everybody has a debrief, whether it's a public or a school program. What happens is people come, buy a ticket, and they're oriented to the idea beforehand, and they're told that they are going to become runaway slaves, uh, and they will be helped through the Underground Railroad in Indiana, but they will be on their own at different points. Um, so there is some autonomy to the program. Um, so they're taken out into the woods here on our site. We actually have over 850 acres in all. So they're taken out into the woods and they are left in an area and they encounter the owner who is selling them and the new owners who are looking at them. So it becomes an auction and they are immediately told to look down at no point are you supposed to look up um, it, this one action or behavior that you're forced to do in the program is so disempowering. I know because I did it um, when I uh, came up from Atlanta to do the program myself. And it is, um, it's really a tough program. We have interpreters playing some very difficult characters um, and then we also have people playing uh, folks that will potentially help them along the way. Um, they eventually make their way through in about an hour, and then they will meet the prophet at the end who will tell them what happened to their person, who, who they're playing. And these are all stories based in the historic record of what might have happened to folks who ha who tried to go uh, who made that dash for freedom um, and uh, through Indiana. So that program to me um, is, is brave for a number of reasons, but it's also allowable in that circumstance because of the format of theater. It gives you that safe space in which to explore these ideas. You know that you're not a slave, and yet this is some of what it might have felt like. So you can let yourself be in that space and explore those feelings that you're having with the idea that ultimately you are going to be able to go home tonight and feel safe. So um, I think that's what theater really allows us to do is explore difficult ideas in that moment um, with that dual reality. We're aware of both the theatrical reality and our own reality. Wow. Um, I, when you talk about uh, some of the difficult characters that, that, uh, that need to be played, how, how do the actors uh, uh, experience this over time? I mean, it... it, it Maybe it's good you only do it for three weeks. It sounds like it could be very intense and there could be a lot of burnout. It is. It is. We, we have a, uh, a staff blog that um, is on our Conner Prairie website. And right now one of our staff who plays a bounty hunter, um, one of the people who, who catches the group at one point, um, and he 
writes about how difficult it is to uh, get into the mindset of someone like that, um, but how he feels that this is really, uh, you know, he feels a mission um, to be able to do this. So I think the importance of the program uh, and people's reactions to the program in general are are really what drive people. Um, people are really committed to this program. This is the 16th year of doing this program. Uh, and so we have, uh, we have a lot of people who might have done it in eighth grade and, you know, come back as an adult. Um, it is, uh, you know, it is that powerful. Um, so I think, um, most of our interpreters who do it are really, really committed to doing it. And I've talked to youth interpreters about this. We have, we have about a hundred youth interpreters who volunteer for Connor Prairie and interpret on their, our grounds all over, do various things. But one of the things that they can do is play characters in follow the North star. And I was, I was talking to this, um, young woman who's now 18, but she's been a youth interpreter for uh, at least four years. And she was talking about how amazing it was to play a Merrick sister. And this is a character who uh, they will help the slaves and give them information, um, but they don't want them to stay there. They're not friendly and they do not consider them to be um, friends. So it's a different kind of position than, say, the Quakers that they might meet who are friends um, to the runaways. Uh, the Merrick sisters are taking a chance. They don't believe in slavery, but they also are very, very aware of the ramifications of helping the slaves. So they're very scared. Um, they want them to move on. And they also don't want them to stay around. They don't want to necessarily invite them to live there, um, but they do help. So it's it's a little more complicated than just, you know, the good guy, bad guy scenario. And I think this young woman was, was talking about um, really enjoying playing that character that presents that side of the story. Yes, I would think as an actor, it would be uh, not only challenging, but very um, uh, intellectually stimulating to be able to play a character who is nuanced. Uh, and certainly in life, most of most human stories are are not um, you know one side or the other, but 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 are in that that area of of gray. Um, how how many hours or what kind of training do uh, do both your? I'm assuming in you use some professional actors and some uh, amateurs. Uh, how how much training does does this take? Well, a lot of people have been doing it for years, so um, you know they're they're kind of mentoring people who come in uh, to a new season. So I know um, we have had uh, several actors that we've hired for our regular season who are now also doing Follow the North Star, and um, 
so they spend a considerable amount of time uh, with the folks who are already in the roles that they will also play. Um, so there's there's a lot of mentoring, uh, a lot of discussion, a lot of research, um, and uh, and then you you go for it. Um, and I was talking to uh, one of those new actors yesterday as he was resting uh, in between doing 13 um, of these for the day program. And then he was going to be doing the public program last night. Um, and so he was saying how, you know, he's done a lot of different jobs and this one is pretty exhausting. And we were, I was commiserating with him because I think it's pretty impressive what they do. Um, we have, Optimally, 12 groups go through in the day. So you can do your part that many times um, every 15 minutes. So because each part is not more than about 10, um, but you'll do it for that many times. And you have to be on each and every time. The 13th has to be as good as the first. And uh, so the the energy and the focus that is necessary is is really important. Uh, you you have to be good. Um, and I think for actors, we're used to that. That's sort of what you do um, when you're in role. When you're doing a play, um, you you try to find that place where you're just sort of in the flow of whatever that reality is and and you're not you know necessarily always in touch with your other reality uh as much as you might be um although everybody thinks in on those two levels um at the same time so i think uh the rehearsal process is sort of ongoing uh Every time we start up, uh, we have we have some veterans and we have some newbies all the time. Well, and I think that that would would pro like any any organization, it helps to have uh, new enthusiasm coming in. Um, do you uh, what's the business model for this program? Do you is is it so, is it an additional charge or or how? Oh yeah, how it, it is a separate charge. You buy a ticket just for follow the North Star. Um, or you, you know, the school group arranges for a school visit, and this is what they do. They come and they do this program. Um, so, because uh, we're not open to the public uh, out on our outside grounds, um, our regular season outside is the end of March to the through October. Right. That's that's what you said. So this is how you you can program your shoulder months with, mm -hmm. uh, with and, and also allow yourself to, you know, just the practicality of moving people back and forth. Because, of course, this if you had a school group walking through the play, so to speak, it would sort of ruin the atmosphere. Right. So we we have to keep those things separate, although Connor Prairie is really moving uh, very much towards a year round schedule. Um we we talk about our season as if that's all that's happening, and more and more uh, we're ha we have things going on all, all 
the time. Our holiday programming is re- has really beefed up and become quite extensive. So we have a candlelight nights program that goes all through December, starting uh, just after Thanksgiving. Uh, I think it might be our – I don't know. We, we do – so many of the things that happen here have a long history. We just finished our Headless Horseman event, and it was the 30th anniversary for that. And we had 28,000 people, over 28,000 people, come uh, over 11 nights to that event. Um, and so we, we, ha- we offer a real variety of events and experiences here besides that central seasonal outdoor experience that we have Um, a big initiative that we are engaged in right now is integrating stem informal stem education science technology engineering and math um, across the site and a big part of that is indoors in our welcome center we've developed a new exhibition called create connect and it's looking at indiana stories and um, Indiana history, but from a, a STEM perspective. So we're looking at how developments in science and technology have affected folks in Indiana. Wow, that's that's great, Catherine. I'm going to stop you right here because uh, I uh, I want you to flow into some of that your your STEM activity. I think that's going to be very interesting. Then I don't want to cut you off in the middle when we take our break. So I think we're going to break here. Uh, please come back and uh, continue to listen to this very informative discussion we're having with with Catherine Hughes. Uh, remember, you can you'll be able to reach her, and I hope everyone visits her at uh, Connor Prairie uh, in Indiana. I also want to remind you, you can always reach me at carolbossertservices.com. And uh, we will be back uh, to to finish up the show with, uh, with Catherine's interview. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even co-worker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. 
Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to radioshow at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Hi, welcome back. I hope you've continued to join us as we uh, listen to Catherine Hughes, who's currently uh, the Director for Interpretation and Evaluation at Connor Prairie History Museum. And right before the break, Catherine was beginning to talk to us a little bit about uh, Connor Prairie's uh, work in STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and math education uh, at the History Museum. And Catherine, I, I think it's very interesting. Earlier on in the show, you were sharing with us a, a great story about uh, Ada Lovelace and uh, that you did at the Boston uh, Museum of Science, so sort of putting history within a science center. And now it sounds as if you are putting science inside a history center. And I just think that that kind of collaboration across uh, academic fields is something that so many people talk about, but so few people do. So I wouldn't, am very interested in hearing how you're beginning to do that at Connor Prairie. Well, this is really um, the, the, the wide open vision, I think, of Ellen Rosenthal, uh, who is the director here at Connor Prairie. Um, who, you know, wants to open up what we do here at Connor Prairie to all domains of knowledge. History is not just one thing. It's, um, you know, you can't separate out science and history. They're all part, they, part and parcel together. Um, and so uh, with that vision, um, Connor Prairie was able to secure a, a very, a uh, big grant from the National Science Foundation, so um, over $2 million, to go forward with this initiative and also to become a model for other history museums who have not gone in this direction but might want to. So um, we are partnering with the Science Museum of Minnesota to create the actual uh, interactives um, so it's all based in stuff that has worked out on the floor in Minnesota, um, but we are creating the stories from Indiana's history. So in Create Connect, we have three areas. One is looking at the Rural Electrification Act in the 1930s and how the advent of electrical power affected farms in Indiana. Um, and what we've done is create an historic character who can facilitate people building small electric circuits out on an activity table, um, but embed that story firmly in her own, which is a farm wife who is finally getting electricity out on her farm. And how is that going to change her life? 
um, and also asking people to think about how electricity affects their lives. Uh, we also have a huge Flint and Walling, uh, which was a company that made them windmill. This is something that Connor Prairie had, and it's now a centerpiece in this exhibition. And we are looking at wind power and how that affected Indianans. And we use a character who is a Flint and Walling salesman to talk about what the technology um, was at that time, how to use and harness the wind. Um, so we're looking at different stories from the history of Indiana. And finally, we have another area that looks at uh, Rube Goldberg machines. Um, this was based in a story at Purdue. They had fraternities who had, uh, in the 1940s and 50s, a competition to create the best Rube Goldberg machine. Um, and it was something that got so heated that they had to stop the competition at one point because they were uh, trying to, you know, ruin each other's machines. They, it got really nasty. Um, and they've revived it recently. Um, so now current fraternities, engineering fraternities, are competing again to create these uh, mobile, simple machines um, that turn more and more complex. Um, and we're looking at that for engineering. Um, and so we're trying to really embed the story of a scientific development um, in history so that you get what we call scrambled eggs, you get history and science, but you don't necessarily see the, you know, the individual eggs. I think that's a, a, a wonderful metaphor for how uh, how our museums and, and certainly Connor Prairie in particular is looking at human endeavor and not uh, building up raw walls, but uh, but mixing it together. Uh, you know, it the other thing that that occurs to me, Catherine, and we haven't made it. Uh, overt, uh, but certainly your stories have illustrated it, that when we're talking about museum theater, we're not simply or only talking about uh, a theater in a museum or a place where you go uh, to be uh, entertained or given a story, although that's part of it. But museum theater presentations are people in character who involve you in the story. In fact, you can be surrounded by the story as we were, you were presenting the uh, Follow the North Star story or uh, uh, getting a science lesson by someone who is uh, portraying an in-character of a Indiana uh, farm wife in the 1930s. And I think that that's an important uh, message to, uh, to get across uh, to our listeners. And so I, I guess, Catherine, that leads me to uh, what may be uh, my final question, and that is, how do other museums uh, who are perhaps listening today or, or in need of revitalizing their programs uh, uh, incorporate uh, museum theater uh, programming in, into their, their programming? What resources are available to them? Well, there is an organization called the International Museum Theater Alliance, and you can find that on the web, just imtal.org. Um, and you can access uh, other museums who are using theater in a variety of different ways. So you have uh, 
proper presentations that are scripted with professional actors. Um, that's one kind of experience. Uh, the Indianapolis Children's Museum here uh, does ser a series of plays in their Power of Children exhibit that are done every day um, throughout the day. And you can possibly see up to three in that exhibit. Um, and each of them is just about 15 minutes, I think. Um, and you are transported really um, uh, right out of time and space by these plays. Um, you might meet Anne Frank in her attic space or Meep uh, Geese who protected them um, or Ryan White, uh, who was the young man who contracted AIDS through a blood transfusion. His mom donated his entire bedroom to the Children's Museum, and that play in there um, highlights his life. Um, those pieces are very presentational, not as interactive, but they're not, nonetheless powerful. Um, that's one kind of museum theater. What we do here at Connor Prairie is really engage you in dialogue with characters who are in different times, potentially, not always, but potentially. Um, we have our prairie town, which is 1836. You can engage in dialogue with our interpreters about anything, the politics of the day, gender roles, um, the domestic life, anything uh, that you can think of or anything that you're interested in, because we really want to find out what you're interested in by asking you questions and engaging in a conversation. So that is highly interactive. Uh, then in another area of ours, we have the Civil War journey. There we've incorporated technology and multimedia effects with the live interpretation to create a different kind of theatrical experience. And in that, those areas, you can find out the story of the one time that Indiana was invaded by a Southern cavalry during the Civil War. Um, and it's a, it's a very exciting tale. And we tell it in different spaces in that area in different ways. Um, but we use multimedia in those areas um, as opposed to Prairie Town, which doesn't have anything uh, technologically past 1836. So you can make different choices in different areas. Um, and we have a Lenape camp looking at the Native American story and the relationship between white settlers and the Native groups who were here before them. Um, and in that area, sometimes we're in third person, sometimes we're in first person. Um, we're, we're sort of revamping that area to look at the story and try to uh, fine-tune the characters that we create so that we can engage people in dialogue about those issues. Um, so it's also follow the North Star. We call that sort of second-person interpretation because you are the one going into role as uh, the visitor. Um, and I think that's where the really exciting work in museum theater is happening it's that fully participatory experience. Um, that seems to be something that at this point in time, people really want to do. They want to have that experience of being 
in the piece, not watching it necessarily, but being involved, having some agency within the piece, maybe changing the action in some way. Um, and that's a lot of what I was focused on at the Atlanta History Center. Um, and you laughed when you mentioned the Center for uh, Chemical Evolution at Emory that I consulted with. Um, they were developing a play with an outside theater company called Out of Hand Theater in Atlanta to create a science theater experience um, that looked at molecular behavior. And I was the uh, lead evaluator on that project. And they went out into a public park in Atlanta and invited people into this experience. And it was fully participatory. Um, and people loved it. It was, it was, it was, uh, real, we got a great response from people. Um, they were very, very engaged. And, um, we created a play at the Atlanta History Center that looked at the Atlanta race riots of 1906. And this was an event that people had never heard about. Um, and we put people into role and into race. We raced people in that experience. It was a fully participatory promenade performance that people knew that they were engaging in. They were told that it was a fully participatory piece, but they didn't necessarily know exactly what they were going to be doing within it. Um, so it was, uh, that was a very exciting experiment. Um, and it worked really, really well, um, to engage people. And the participatory element was the thing that really struck people. And after that one, we had a public dialogue with each audience about their experience. And people talked about what it felt like to be either raced differently than their own race or raced the same. Uh, we had these two sisters who talked about uh, they were African-American women and they happened to have been raised black in the play. And they said how it really made them feel in touch with their grandmother, put them in touch with what she had experienced um, as an African-American woman at an earlier time in history. Um, so, uh, or vice versa, it was, you know, interesting to hear a Clark Atlanta student talk about what it felt like to be raced white in the play and therefore have a seat in different areas when others didn't necessarily have a seat because they were in the colored section of that scene. You know, Catherine, it, it reminds me that in, in this continued, dia continued dialogue that I've been having with museum professionals as we struggle with uh, questions of what is unique about a museum experience and, and, and what uh, would make uh, new audiences go to museums, uh, there, there is no other place uh, where you can get this, this kind of second-person, authentic uh, experience, except in some of the programs that, that you're discussing. And it seems to me that this is an area where museums, uh, particularly those who are currently doing this kind of work, need to really embrace it and allow uh, these unique experiences to define them in the community. I would, I would totally agree. I think that, uh, you know, Connor Prairie has definitely looked at that question and they, uh, I, I think that 
one of the great things around here that I feel, you know, I'm, I'm still new, um, but I, I feel a connection to the community around us. People are proud of Connor Prairie. They, um, they're invested in what we do. And because it's, uh, Connor Prairie has taken so many chances, um, and done different things beyond that original idea of uh, creating a living history museum, um, we're always surprising people. Um, and I think that's really important. We can't just be what people experienced when they w- came here on their fourth grade you know, field trip. We have, to, we have to be experimenting all the time, exploring the idea of representation and relevance um, and I think, uh, to Ellen's credit, we were, uh, highlighted in the new book, The Magnetic Museum, um, because of some of these initiatives. Yes, I, I, uh, I encourage everyone to get that book. I also encourage everyone to get the museum theater communicating with visitors through drama, uh, that Catherine authored and is available from Amazon and anyone can always uh, uh, look at the Museum of, um, I'm sorry, the International Museum Theater Alliance online to see really great uh, museum uh, theater programming. Catherine, it has been a pleasure uh, to have you on the show today. Remember, you can reach me at carolbossertservices.com anytime. Again, thank you very much for listening to the Museum Life, uh, and we will be back next week. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. With the weekend coming up, why not plan a trip to your favorite museum or one you've never been to? 